Well, hi, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latofsky. It has been quite a few months since the last mm-hmm. episode. We left off with an episode about Death to Smoochie. And Which that, is a classic and of I, horror and sci-fi and such. And it killed the podcast, apparently. <laughs> Much like Danny DeVito's directing career. I know. And we love that movie. But anyway, life got in the way, I guess. It just, uh, we tried several times. Uh, We had plans for multiple episodes, many of which might materialize at some point in the future. We had watched movies like uh, Dark City and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and both V-miniseries, which I love a lot. That was for my birthday, which just passed. I watched uh, the first two Terminator movies for the first time ever. Yes, these are all wonderful things we could be talking about. So instead... Well, we'll get we'll get back we'll to get some to of it. that stuff because I it's one of my joys also is when we talk about stuff one or the other hasn't seen. Mm-hmm. But another thing we often do on the show that was never part of our initial plan for the structure, but that seems to be something we fell into that's very comfortable, is doing films and their remakes and talking about comparing and contrasting that. And in order to jumpstart things again, uh, we've been watching, I mean, we've also been watching a lot of stuff. I've been spending a lot of time trying to watch a lot of Mexican and Spanish horror movies on the various streaming services because I've discovered how much fun so many of them are and how there's a lot I haven't seen. It fills in a gap for you in like a time period where you thought, oh, I've seen everything made in this stretch of time. And then yeah. you think I could leave the country and then see more things made in the 70s and I the 80s. I can go back to the 70s and 80s and see Hugo Stiglitz at his prime. Which, if anybody knows what that even means, you know what I'm talking about. Prime would be in air quotes if you could see us. <laughs> it would be. Also, just uh, started subscribing to Screenbox, and we're continuing to keep Shutter because both of those services are very good looking for a variety of horror past and present. They're also basically the only services we subscribe to that haven't continued to raise the price of the subscription every three months for the last year. Right, which is obscene. That's another whole episode. (laughs) And then another thing we've been doing, as we've talked about on the podcast before, is how uh, throughout the pandemic, we really doubled, tripled, and quadrupled down on watching Mystery Science Theater over and over and over again until they were like, just, we could recite them all by heart. I have no desire for the close company of other people. My dear, you cannot live in isolation from the human race, And after years of kind of resisting it, like we thought we'd never quite be able to make the leap because without the robots and the characters, we thought maybe it wouldn't work. We finally really, really got into Rift Tracks and what that team has done, uh, particularly with their live shows, which they've provided a lot of on their service and on Pluto, for example. We got into it so much watching episodes for free on like Tubi and Pluto and things that we actually... (laughs) Subscribe to yet another streaming service because Rift Tracks has their own Rift Tracks Friends subscription that's like a five ninety nine monthly subscription, and uh, we kind of really dove in. As far as another couple little bits of update for you, for anybody who's a regular listener who likes to interact at all, and we certainly encourage it, it's become so much more difficult these days. We've pretty much stopped using Twitter entirely because it's now just a, a platform for hate, among other and stupidity. So uh, if you're still there and you're hanging in, you know, no judgment, understand, but we had to finally say we're done. However, 
in addition to places like Facebook, yes, sorry, that still works for me anyway, and Instagram, we are both trying out Threads, which is the Twitter competitor of sorts brought to you by Meta, the same company that does Facebook and Instagram. And yes, it's a choice of one huge evil company over another, whatever. We're already into so much with Facebook and Instagram, we might as well give Threads a try. So if you are on Threads, and especially if you're a UK horror fan who hears Threads and instantly thinks, why would you name a social media service after <laughs> one of the most depressing nuclear movies ever made? Then join us uh, on Threads, uh, just ourselves. I'm still Doctor of the Dead. You are? I'm positively Natalie, because that is my Instagram handle, and thus becomes instantly your Threads handle. And we will f you will find us there. And you can also find me trying to be very active and frequently wordy on Letterboxd. I have a Letterboxd under my regular name, Arnold T. Blumberg, and I've been trying to keep up with what we're doing. And uh, one of the things that has come about as a result of the Rift Tracks thing is I feel like we're racking up seeing a lot of really good, bad movies yes. that we would never be able to watch as themselves, but that I count having seen them, even though we're seeing them with the Rift Tracks guys mm -hmm. or, uh, or gals, because uh, Bridget and Mary Jo do quite a lot of great Rift Tracks stuff. They're a fun team as and, well. Yeah, so... I feel like if we've seen it with them and we would never have been able to watch it otherwise, it counts as seeing the movie. I'm with you. And and we would riff it anyway if we were watching a bad movie. So. <laughs> and we do, often. So with all that having been said, and yes, please try to find us online at those various places. Um, it's like and, a little treasure hunt now to find us online. But uh, we were thinking what to do, and we had all these things we were going to do, but time kept passing, and then we had Rift Tracks live version of Carnival of Souls on, which we'd had on multiple times at this point. And unfortunately, when they do some of the Rift Tracks live stuff, they use a colorized version of the movie. But I've kind of gotten past my initial hate of that and figure, all right, fine. I know what the movie looks like without it. It's all right. Yeah. Um, and at some point while watching the Carnival of Souls, I think it was just yesterday while we were doing it, you turned to me and said, oh, you know, we looked up, we found there was actually, I mentioned there was a remake. Mm -hmm, which I had never known. And I'd totally forgotten about the fact that there was a remake. It's one of the horror remakes that has been quite rightly, like completely forgotten, I think. <laughs> But came about, and, and if you're a longtime listener, you know that we've spent a lot of time kind of reconstructing ourselves, that sort of era of the late 90s, early 2000s, that sparked a huge renaissance of remakes of horror movies, especially the Platinum Dunes and other stuff that came like at the end of the first decade of the 2000s. But right around this time, 1998, same year that they did probably one of the worst remakes ever made in the history of cinema, which is Gus Van Zandt's Psycho Oof. with Vince Vaughn. Oof. And uh, what is it? Anne Heche. That same year, they did a remake of Carnival of Souls, which I only vaguely remember seeing and reading and maybe seeing a clip about. And having grown up never being interested in Carnival of Souls beyond reading about it as a historical artifact, mm. it never enticed me. So we were watching it, and then you were like, guess what? The Carnival of Souls remake is on Tubi. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, all right, we're doing this. And so, welcome back, listeners. We relaunch Ghouls in the House with a little chat. We'll try to keep it not as long, maybe, as we sometimes do. 
about the original Carnival of Souls from 1962, which is widely regarded as a major landmark in uh, horror cinema history, which we're not going to dispute. Um, no. And the 1998 remake, which is certainly one of the worst things we've ever seen in a very long time. For sure. And deeply offensive, too, on multiple oh, levels. Oh, yes, very yes. much so. And I think you've been very much looking forward to tearing this one apart. Oh, yes. Okay. First off... Let's start with the good one. Good luck, Mary. Stop by and see us the next time you're in. Thank you. But I'm never coming back. For those of you that have followed me for a long time, you know that all the stuff I used to do, very zombie-specific, and my book, Journey of the Living Dead, where I tried to show the history that led up to Night of the Living Dead... One of the things that has always been woven into the history of zombies, specifically in horror cinema in general, is that Herc Harvey's Carnival of Souls, an extremely low budget, instantly public domain effort from the early 60s, uh, had a big role to play in setting the stage for Night of the Living Dead, most specifically the look of the pasty-faced ghouls that keep pursuing our uh, protagonist as she slowly moves through a dreamscape. Also, by the way, if you've listened to us over and over, you know that we say, full spoilers, if you've never experienced Carnival of Souls before, go stop this now and watch it. Because <laughs> and you can find it basically everywhere because yeah. it's public domain. Watch it in black and white. Yes. And and come back because we're just going to say everything. And, and really, it's been a long time. So, right? Saw it? So anyway... The point being, of course, that she's spending the entire movie avoiding the reality of her own death, and these ghouls are pursuing her and basically trying gently, if a bit creepily, to bring her over to the other side where she belongs. They're doing their best. They um they don't have a lot of people skills. No. You know, like they're not sort of like the gentle welcoming, hey friend, I think you're sort of meant to be hanging with us. No. They just kind of stare at you and like amble and look a little wild eyed and very sort of chalky. Now, it's Candace Hillegloss, who is the lead uh, as Mary Henry in Carnival of Souls. She didn't go on to many other significant things. I think the thing that I found most significant about her uh, in terms of like the wider history of uh, media and pop culture for anybody that knows this person, and I'm sure many of you who listen to us do, is that she was married for a long time to Nicholas Coster, who is one of the quintessential character actors of 70s and 80s television. He was Robert Delaney on one of the soap operas. I can't remember which one. I just remember my mother always referred to him as Robert Delaney whenever she saw him in anything, because she didn't remember his real name, but she knew he was Robert Delaney. And Hella Gloss wrote many years later a very scathing memoir about the nightmare of her marriage to Nicholas Coster. And that to me is like one of her only other major contributions to pop culture is like, if you know, Nicholas Coster, you know, there was, there was a, a tumultuous uh, relationship. It's an unfortunate thing because you watch something like Carnival of Souls and you can see how much she throws herself into the part. She really does. I mean, yeah. like she's like, giving a hundred percent effort she'd learned with strasburg i mentioned this to you mm -hmm. she was she was not kidding about acting she trained with lee strasburg 
And she really, I guess, took this very seriously. And it sounds like basically, like, I mean, we read a lot of stories like this, especially out of like the 50s and 60s of women who are working in Hollywood, who marry someone who's also in the business, who cannot handle having two people in the home in the business because there's like an ego involved in wanting to be the more successful one. And so basically they sort of end up like sublimating their own desires to have a performance career and just, you know, shut down. And it sounds like that's what happened with her not long after this. I don't remember the details, but I do remember, I think ego was a big part of the whole thing. Very much so. So Candace Hillegloss is Mary. Um, It was all shot around Kansas and Salt Lake City for pennies. Um, Herc Harvey, who created the film, who wrote, and, um, actually, no, he, he got other people to write it, came up with the story, directed it. He appears as the main ghoul. If you ever see a lot of the stills of the main ghoul, uh, and whether he's in the psychiatrist's chair coming after at the end, he's the main one. So he's got a very good look for that too. I only subsequently found that too, that as a Lawrence, Kansas local, many years later, he also turns up in a speaking role in The Day After. When they came to Lawrence to shoot The Day After, they included Harvey. Because he also had an extensive career in film production working for the Kansas-based Centron Corporation that did tons and tons of the kinds of short films that the Mystery Science Theater and Rift Tracks crew could have so much fun with, including... One of the best things Rift Tracks has ever done, which they themselves acknowledge is one of their highlights, mm-hmm. Herc Harvey did the short Shake Hands with Danger, which is about like safety on the construction job and and dealing with those uh, the vehicles and equipment. And, and it it's ha- kind of a horror movie. It is. It has some horrific stuff in it. <laughs> it has a guitar riff that is like instantly infectious when you hear it. He decided he wanted to do a feature film and Carnival of Souls is the result. You can really see Carnival of Souls as like a feature length shake hands with danger. (laughs) This is like the ultimate shake hands with danger. (laughs) This is what happens when you shake hands too often with danger. He was also inspired apparently by seeing the Salt Air Pavilion in Salt Lake City and thinking what an incredible image, which it is. It is. And And one of the things I said, we will not in any way dispute Carnival of Souls' place in the history of horror cinema and its role as an inspiration for many other productions that followed, not just Night of the Living Dead, but countless other films and filmmakers, all of whom, from Lynch to Romero, many others, who have said or have been credited as clearly being inspired by Carnival of Souls. Having said that, I don't think either of us really think it's as good... (laughs) As I think people want it to be. I mean, here's the thing. What people often praise about Carnival of Souls isn't really the plot. Like, the plot isn't really what comes up in the praise, and that's for a good reason. Really, this is just a feature-length Twilight Zone episode. It's essentially, if you've seen enough Twilight Zone, the Hitchhiker episode of the Twilight Zone... This movie is that, but feature length. So plot is not the reason. And I'll also throw in that what's interesting is we've been saying for years, it's like Hitchhiker with a little bit of after hours thrown in Mm -hmm. when they're all coming after her to bring her back to the department store. Right, right. Marsha. 
And yet, apparently, he was inspired by the short film Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which wound up becoming the last Twilight Zone episode, which is itself a version of what would later be used as Jacob's Ladder, the idea of, you know, what's the moment of death. Mm -hmm. And then, as we'll talk later, the remake really picks up on that. Yeah. So I think, I don't think we would get a lot of argument from people that the plot is the reason that it's considered a classic. But what is sort of phenomenal about it in sort of an art house way is that it's just really pretty to look at. Like he found really creepy settings Mm -hmm. and filmed them very competently. So like the cinematography, the lighting in particular is what a lot of people talk about. It may seem a little cheesy now, but I think the consistency of the makeup effects across all of the various ghouls that you see it's is understated quite good. and effective. It's effective. You don't need to do more than yeah, that. Yeah, it's not over the top and it's consistent across all of them. And yeah. also gives you a really nice shorthand towards the end when she's really getting closer to like her acceptance point where she's seeing herself in the ghoul makeup. Right. And right. you sort of get that back and forth between you know her regular face and her as the ghoul's face and it it works very well there's definitely a few scenes of her sort of wandering around that site um where the light coming through like boards and slats like is that, really extraordinary it's like that germ was like german impressionistic and like film noir kind of stuff yeah and yeah it's beautiful and also I can totally see where, particularly in this, like, we're we're Halloween 24-7, 365 anyway. <laughs> but I mean, I know I know we get that feeling when, like, we start getting this time of year, we start ramping it up. Like, let's start yeah. rewatching all the things we love and we'll throw in some new things. And it's, like, more exciting. And I can definitely see where we've both come to this pretty late in the scheme of things as horror fans, but I can definitely see where Carnival of Souls works well as the kind of movie you put on where you don't necessarily pay attention to it 100%. It is a mood, and it is a very effective mood. It's kind of a beautiful, boring film. (laughs) Right. I particularly like the weird mythology of it, too. There's that, because she moves from Kansas to Salt Lake City, Mm -hmm. or the Utah, anyway. I don't know if they say Salt Lake. Well, anyway, she moves you After. see her entering Utah, so, like, so you know she's she's swapping states. Again, we told you to watch this. So, like, she had the car accident in the beginning. Spoiler alert, she's always been dead from the car accident. <laughs> but she moves, and she's going to play organ at the church, and, and, you know, she's... And then she occasionally has these periods where you get, like, the um, almost Wayne's World-like ripple effect of flashback, and it's really, like, her suddenly becoming invisible to everybody around her because she's, like, slipping across the border into death. But then she comes back. But the weird thing is when they come to check out what happened to her, they're re- they're piecing together her running out onto the beach at the end. But then we cut back to Kansas where they're pulling the car out. And what's interesting is there's a strong implication here that she was genuinely interacting with living people in mm. Utah the whole time until the moment she finally accepted and was taken in by all the other ghouls. Which means that, like, so what? She was, like, still living? Like, she was actually a corporeal being, but, like, sometimes not. She was kind of slipping into being a ghost. It's a really weird 
different way of looking at it all. And it's a nice, creepy concept. It would be interesting to see that played with maybe in a more competent story. Like, you know, you could do interesting stuff with that. And there are stories like that. But I think that it doesn't matter. The story isn't that well-structured, maybe. It's, again, like we said, it's a tone poem. It's very atmospheric. Yeah, and I think, really, when it comes down to it, it's a movie about accepting the inevitable, right? Like, she actually seems to will herself to continue existing by refusing to acknowledge that she's died. Right. And it's a very interesting idea. Um, And I think that maybe written slightly differently, it might have, I don't know, come across in as like more engaging somehow. But it's also not to do with any of the ability of the actors, because we both also agreed, you know, in watching it and actually paying attention a little more carefully. Yeah. That between the riffs. Between the riffs. <laughs> right. Like, look, we watched it yesterday with the riff tracks live crew and it's very much more enjoyable that way i think so um but i could see sitting through this without them though which i couldn't say about a lot of movies we've mm -hmm. seen with riff tracks for sure yeah um but there's also a lot of sort of i guess movies we watch that maybe are atmospheric or we like something about them but not the plot where also the acting is kind of terrible where like you watch a movie and you're like, ugh, like part of why you can't sort of get into it is that the acting isn't good. And this is not one of those yeah, films. Yeah, I think everybody in this is pretty good. I think so. Including like uh, this one of those thankless tasks kind of role. Sidney Berger is the one who has to be like the sleazy guy who, that's a the great example of how it's so hitchhiker mm-hmm. from Twilight Zone. Because the, the, one of the main beats with him is the beat with her and the sailor in the car in Twilight Zone where she's like, I'll... It's about as racy as Twilight Zone ever got, too. For which sure. Is basically flat out saying, I'll do anything with you if you just stay. And he finally gets creeped out. It's like, whoa, we're not, I'm not doing this. And that's what she's trying to spend time with him, who's obviously not someone you want to spend time with. But she just wants anyone, you mm-hmm. know, until she kind of just pisses him off, too. And it's, no, it doesn't work. It is. It's the triumph of atmosphere. And a general competency in performance that makes this work. And all the things we can say about story, or maybe this would be more engaging, or maybe that. But what are we talking about? Because this one has become iconic and an incredible moment in horror history. Maybe if it had been done better or differently, it wouldn't be Carnival of Souls, the way people think of it and the way it impacted people. So... You know, who are we to say that it could be better? And I think also one of the things we've talked about a lot when it comes to something like, say, Night of the Living Dead, because Carnival of Souls is in the public domain and has been in the public domain since its creation, it gave it a different kind of life and sort of meant that so many people had access and exposure to it. And so even if it's something where we're like, well, the story, it's not working for us. In a sense, it doesn't really matter because we're talking about an era where if you hadn't like seen the episodes of the Twilight Zone, we're talking about like you weren't getting syndicated reruns. You didn't have home media where you could have it and watch it. And maybe this is the first time 
you had exposure to this type of storytelling or this type of story. And if you were somebody who liked watching things that were creepy or scary or really it's just kind of spooky. It's not it's, it's not like yeah. a horror movie. Um it's un it's unsettling. Yeah, it's yeah. very unsettling. And odds are good if you were into anything in that general like range of genres, you probably saw this in yeah. the sixties. And you probably saw it in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties. I mean there's a lot of a lot to be said for the fact that accessibility and availability creates some kind of sort of following to something. It's interesting that I was just seeing when I was looking all this stuff up about it, that it got a festival run in 1989. There was really like the moment apparently where it really like resurfaced, as we now always like to say. So although it was around and I guess running like late night television and things like that. Drive-ins maybe. Yeah. 89 and one appears to be where it really started having a major resurgence and people's awareness of it even existing. And then that really, so the nineties really were a time, I guess, which all the more reason than why I guess somebody decided, Hey, let's remake this. <laughs> and the thing is, it's not a crazy choice. No. As opposed to some things where you could look at something and go, why bother? Leave it alone. Carnival of souls is a low budget regional film that certainly has its flaws and you could certainly look at it no matter what you think of it that you like about it and say this could be done better we we could try something different with this like any classic ghost story yeah there's the sort of opportunity to retell it with a slightly more modern outlook or a modern lens right and i mean you had people her carvey was certainly no amateur like in like there were stories that i think we've kind of gotten rid of them now but for decades, there are always these lingering stories around like the making of Night of the Living Dead, like this scrappy group in Pennsylvania put together a film. Scrappy group, Romero and his team were making commercials for years. They were professional filmmakers. They, they were just, professional commercial filmmakers. Yeah, they just hadn't made a feature film, per Same se. with Herc Harvey. Herc Harvey had been working in this in Centron and doing this stuff. He's not an idiot. He, he knew how to make a movie. But he wanted to make a feature-length narrative. And another thing that I just found out and wanted to throw in before I assume we move on um, is that as an assistant director, and I might get the pronunciation wrong, he had an Iranian-born uh, American uh, assistant director named Reza Badii, or Badii, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, sorry. I recognized his name instantly. Because as a Star Trek fan, I remember seeing his name pop up. He directed multiple episodes of Deep Space Nine many years later. But while being a prolific director of television in the 70s, 80s, 90s, he became well known for being uh, excellent at creating the kinds of montages that would be used for title sequences for television shows. And as an example, he's the person responsible for the title sequences for Mary Tyler Moore with her throwing her hat up, the Get Smart opening, and Hawaii Five O, and those are just a few. And he was the assistant director working on Carnival of Souls. So you've got people working on this, even if it's at the beginning of their careers, who were talented people. And still, there are reasons to look at that original film and go, "What could we do with a remake?" And then someone came along in 1998 to show you all the ways that that can fail utterly and completely. <laughs> if Lewis were still creeping around the house, why wouldn't he have gotten you sooner? 
because that wouldn't be any fun. And this is where we turn to Adam Grossman, about whom Candace Hilla Gloss herself said, if you ever see his name on a movie, avoid it completely. All the things she had to say about this movie. She has a lot of opinions, and I really do share a lot of those opinions after seeing this movie. So we moved on and we watched the remake, which was made in 1998, starring Bobby Phillips, whose only credit I ever remember uh, and I'm sure a lot of sci-fi fans might remember this too, is that she was Bambi, Dr. Bambi, in uh, the Cockroach episode of X-Files. Did she name it Dr. Bambi? She was Dr. Bambi Bambenic or Burbenic or something. She was like uh, like the love interest for Mulder. They were like sparking a little bit. And Scully was getting uncomfortable, I think. God, the 90s. And then there was this idea that Bambi would be back. We all wanted Bambi back. And then she was only in the one episode. So. Uh, so she's our lead in this. Shawnee Smith, who Saw fans know very well, is in it as her sister. And as the uh, sinister, ghoulish ghost clown. <laughs> I, I can't believe you even just had to say that phrase. I, I can't. I'm not sure I could do it. Larry Miller, ladies and gentlemen. Larry like Miller. You've never seen him before and never want to see him again. I have. No. Yeah. It was it was so uncomfortable. Watching Larry Miller do this. Yes, the same Larry Miller. What do you think? I'm coming up with another one. The comedian, the one from all Christopher Guest movies. That Larry Miller. The one who has the incredible stand-up routine about the different stages of drinking. That Larry Miller. The dad from 10 Things I Hate About You. Yes. For the millennials in the crowd. He is, that Larry Miller. <laughs> he is the blonde page boy wearing evil molesting clown. I, just, I, just, yeah. I don't understand this. So anyway. Uh, it's also an incredibly different movie. The other, the other thing, too, is that one of the things that occurred to me, we hate this movie so much. <laughs> Did oh, you get that? so yet? much. One of the things that occurred to me was you do a remake of Carnival of Souls. You have two choices. You do exactly the same joke at the end. And I say joke, but, you know, that, that same Twilight Zone hook at the end. Or you change it. I guess maybe twist is the better twist. word. It's not that twisty. Yeah, but, but like, you either do exactly the same thing. Or you change it because you're saying, well, it's a remake. I got to keep you on your toes. And we've done plenty of movies like that, too, where it's like, well, we know you know what's coming because that's the brand of this title. So we got to do something different. In fact, House on Haunted Hill is a great example where, I mean, we kind of obviously opened up our podcast with that one. But they did a remake of House on Haunted Hill where they supposed, what if the house were actually haunted? And I couldn't believe that this movie... it's 1998. This movie apparently had a very limited theatrical release, but basically went straight to video. So you're you're in the video store in the late 90s. You're a horror fan. You see a new Carnival of Souls out. And as we just talked about, you're likely to have seen Carnival of Souls or know what it is. I can't imagine anybody watching this movie then that wouldn't know exactly where it was going or yeah. where they thought it was going. And to me, it seems like, well, if you're going to do the remake then and try to put your stamp on it, changed the ending maybe and the thing is you know how i feel i think i wouldn't normally say that but i think the only real way you can do this is change the ending not only do they not do that but then they change everything else and and turn it into a deeply offensive uncomfortable just mean-spirited film where the other is contemplative and lyrical and almost poetic 
This one is gritty and ugly. Just go ahead, tear it apart some more. <laughs> well, here's here's I think maybe the the jumping off point for the hatred of this film is that we've talked a lot before about how we're okay with with violence in film. We we watch a lot of horror. We watch a lot of grotesque horror and bloody horror but one thing that both of us have a lot of trouble watching on film is what feels like just sort of i guess extreme suffering yeah like it's sort of the difference between like having a scene where somebody gets killed and having a scene where somebody gets tortured right it's like we can kind of watch the scene with the violence but the scene with the torture it's difficult right and this felt like 88 minutes of torture where the first one you really don't know anything about mary and you don't need to yeah she dies in the car accident she seems like a nice person she plays the organ she's very confused and eventually she realizes she's been dead the whole time and she has to move on and they've been trying to get her to wake up to that and this one uh our lead has a sister, and uh, when she was a little girl, her mother was raped and murdered by an evil clown from the nearby carnival. Who, who she'd been dating because she had poor yeah, judgment. He had apparently been with the family for a while, and may even have done things with her too, although at this point the movie, as we've pointed out in the past too, you either have the conviction of your ugliness or you don't, seems to not want to clarify how far this actually went while still getting the benefit of making you uncomfortable about it. Yeah. I mean, it wants you to think that he molested her. Yes. And possibly her sister. And yet it doesn't really like say it, but it says enough so that you just feel so bad. For this person. So she witnesses the murder of her mother by this guy, who in the flashback we see, she might have had a chance, perhaps. She's a little kid who's traumatized, so how much agency can you expect to have? But she's like, the possibility existed that if she picked up the gun, maybe she could have stopped him. But, you know, she can't. And, And so she sees her mother die. But the strong implication throughout the rest of the movie as she has a similar, well, not a similar incident with the car, because in this one, it is in fact, I think, true that he gets out of prison, accosts her in the car, and she decides to drive them both off the pier to save her sister from him. Now we get the rest of the movie where she's dead the whole time, and he is too. Yeah. But he's constantly haunting her, turning up, torturing her in various ways, both physically and emotionally, while she keeps having incredibly on-the-nose, horribly obvious conversations about moving on or being afraid or the other side. And oh, the water, the water. And water dripping everywhere in the bar that she runs because, of course, she's in a car and she's drowning, right? So the water is everywhere. The water's dripping onto the bar. They can't seem to, like, collect it in a bigger receptacle than like a shot glass and it's an entire movie watching someone who was an innocent victim suffer more 
And re-victimize her. And for what purpose does the movie tell us this story? And then the only thing I could think at the end was, are we supposed to believe that the thing she's needing to sort out, because another thing that comes up is multiple meetings with Michael, who, who is, runs a boat. He's a ferryman. A he, boat. He and his name is Michael. He keeps offering. boat. He keeps offering her a boat ride. Are you ready for the boat ride? Well, not yet. Because it's an 85-minute movie, and unfortunately, we still have 85 minutes left. <laughs> There's always 85 minutes left in this movie. I folks. swear, I thought we were almost at the end, and we paused it, and it only had been 20 minutes. But 20 minutes! When we got to the end, I was thinking, are we supposed to believe that the reason she's trapped is that she needs to let go of her feeling of guilt for not having picked up the gun and saved her mother? And if that's the case... This is Carnival of Gaslighting, is yes, what it is. Yes, if that's the case, that is a deeply hurtful and, and, and just incredibly mean thing to put the main character through, who has already been through enough to then say, your passage to death is being held up because of your own guilt. And, and then on top of it, there's that little bit where Michael says, you know, we all choose our death. And it's like, wait, so are you suggesting that her mother chose to be violated and murdered? That was her way of, like, no, that, I'm sorry, that's not the way this works. So basically, it's like, to summarize, the plot of this movie is, small child is victimized. She gets, like, a 20-year reprieve of really just being sad and feeling awful, but not being in danger, before the guy shows up again, re-victimizes her, Leaves her feeling like she has no choice but like a suicidal end run off a pier in the car. And then, even in death, it's her own fault that she can't cross over because she has guilt about not killing him before he could kill her mother, leaving him alive to then cause her to have to die again too. But not before she like rests like this guilt to the ground and literally shoots it in the head. Before she's allowed to actually die. And then the final scene is like her sister distraught and crying and sad and picking up the phone and hearing carnival noises. Because like she tried to call her sister from the pier in the almost afterlife. And the whole thing is just like so offensive and so like anger inducing because you look at it and you think like... How on earth did this movie get made? How on earth did any of the women in this film agree to be in this film? Like, how did she agree to have a scene where she is literally sexually assaulted with a gun? Oh my god, I forgot that part already. I've been trying to block it out of my mind. It's like this- By Larry Miller, no By less. Larry Miller, the dad from 10 Things I Hate About You. I know. It's- it's like the whole movie is just a series of not just terrible decisions, but cruel decisions for the sake of cruelty. And that's the, that is absolutely all you need to know about why you would avoid this movie. Please don't watch it. Yes, definitely don't. But filling in the gaps between the deeply offensive, hurtful, and like apocalyptically bad choices. Mm -hmm are the ridiculous choices that get us to the next really offensive one. 
Like the part where she spreads her mother's ashes with her bare hands. She just reaches <laughs> into the urn with her hand and tosses it into the wind and it's flying back into her hair and it's still on her hand and there's just no way right. that that could have happened. The aforementioned glass on the bar collecting the like really on the nose metaphorical drip from the ceiling that seems to come from nowhere. Whoop, whoop. It's a bar. You have so many receptacles that you could get water into. And yet the whole movie, it's just drip, drip, whoop, whoop all the time. As I think as we've mentioned too, we've mentioned more than once, it's the movie that really makes you need to pee. All the time. <laughs> the I think movie. we stopped to pee like three times during this film. You have to. Whoop, whoop. And, well, it is like eight hours long. And also the uh, where is where the original had, you just talked about in the original, mm. the the nice, consistent, low-key approach to creating the ghouls. Yes. In this, there are some scenes where a few people at the carnival have what is the equivalent of the 90s version of the Carnival of Souls ghoulish look. But what they do instead, most of the time, is what was that, I always hated it, that really silly, still do hate it, really silly, in-vogue thing at the time that, again, remember I mentioned Jacob's Ladder, Really kicked off with Jacob's Ladder, I think. You can correct me if anything predated that. And then really got picked up by things like Silent Hill and a lot of other horror throughout the 90s and early 2000s of the, like, fleshy-looking, eyeless, like, jagged-teeth ghosts that will, like, shake their heads really fast or, like, ripple or, like, teleport down a hallway. She keeps seeing these creatures Mm -hmm. throughout the whole thing. When she's not seeing Larry Miller in a blonde wig. Which is basically no way to, like, gently encourage someone to go ahead and, like, accept their death and let go. Yeah. Like, of course you're going to fight yeah. that. This is this is the idea the passage looks horrific. Yeah. And she's being tortured from every direction. And she's basically told she can't actually take the ferry ride to the afterlife without first stopping at the carnival and, like facing her victimizer in like an Alice in Wonderland funhouse. It's just, ugh, ugh. It's so gross. It's terrible. And like you said, why they would participate. Let's also point out, I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe not the most charitable thing. I mean, I wouldn't say Bobby Phillips is necessarily the strongest lead you can have for something like this, but she tries. Everybody in this, I think, is trying to be honest, but, I do think the kid playing the kid version of her is doing a better acting better job, job than yeah. she is. Yeah. She's just kind of like vacantly like staring into the middle distance the whole time. It's like she looks uncomfortable to be in the movie. Which, yeah, which and may not involve any acting at all. She very well might have been. And I don't know, maybe she felt like she couldn't get out of it once they started. But I genuinely don't understand as well what larry miller was thinking like, i don't know why either. did he sign up for this did he like just want a chance to play a bad guy like i get it but i'd almost like to find out if there's ever an interview that said why the hell would why? you do this why did you do this um because it just is very out of character for him as a person like never mind an actor how you expect to see him on the screen it's just knowing about him as a person it just feels like the kind of role he wouldn't take i don't get it to sum up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the original Carnival of Souls 
while it wouldn't necessarily make either of our top 10 lists in the way that it often does for others, we can totally see the reasons why mm-hmm. it is as appreciated and respected as it is and can also enjoy it on exactly those merits too. And I think we've come around to that more the more we've seen it. it uh, there's a lot to recommend it yeah. uh, as an atmospheric experience that's perfect for the Halloween season. Just avoid the remake. I would like costs. to know if there is a class action lawsuit that I can join for people who have watched the 1998 Carnival of Souls. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House featuring Natalie B. Latosky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on threads at Positively Natalie and me at Doctor of the Dead. Our movies this episode were Carnival of Souls 1962 and Carnival of Souls 1998. Whoop, whoop. Ghouls in the House is an ATB Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com.